Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So today, we are going to look at what it is that, that's represented by Palm Sunday, the triumphant return of Jesus into Jerusalem. And, and we look at Matthew chapter 21, and that's really where we're going to take our main text today. But before we get there, there are a few things that I want to look at, and there were words that were spoken by Jesus during this week of Holy Week that I believe are so significant and important for us as a church and for the church of, of God, the body of Christ, to pay attention to in the, in the time that we're living in right now. But what I want to just quickly do is recognize sometimes the way that we read the Bible, sometimes that the challenges that we face in reading the words of Jesus. The thing is, when we read the Bible, very often we read it through our own perspective, through our own lens, through our own circumstances, our past, and, and we tend to look at it in a way that kind of conforms to our life. But that's not how we're meant to read the Word of God, is it? The truth of the Word of God is the truth of the Word of God, regardless of who we are and where we come from. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we try to put ourselves in some of the stories. I like to think of myself as a Gideon, as a Joshua, as a David. You know, we we pick the the best ones and we're like, that's who I want to be. There's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of amazing men and women in the Bible, those who had great faith that saw great results, and then some who saw great failures, and, and some who had both. But when we're reading these stories, when we're reading the Word of God, what I would ask you to do is to put yourself there in the story as we're reading it. That we would listen to the words of Jesus, not as words on a page, not as a textbook to hear about history, but to understand that the words that Jesus spoke are just as much for us today as they were the day that they were spoken. We want to read the Bible not through our own lens and in our own narrative, but in the truth of what Jesus actually said. You see, so much of what the world does right now is that they try to see Jesus as a justification of their poor decisions and their dysfunction. They say things like, well, Jesus wouldn't have said that. Jesus wouldn't have done that. Jesus would have just loved and accepted everybody and everything because Jesus is love. They look at Jesus as this mythical figure who just really wanted to love all, which he did. He did want to love all, not mythical in any way. But that Jesus would never bring a word of correction. That Jesus would never correct somebody because they were doing something or living in a way that wasn't right. And I, and I want to ask, are you sure about that? Have you read the words of Jesus? Or have you just heard what somebody else has told you about him? You see, misunderstanding Jesus is not a recent phenomenon. The people of Israel, they expected a Messiah. They expected a Savior. They expected a conquering hero But can I tell you who they didn't expect? Jesus. They expected the one that was going to come in, change everything, overthrow the Roman Empire, and restore them back to their position as the kingdom of Israel. And what they got instead was a carpenter from Nazareth. The name of this morning's message is The Unexpected Savior. 
the one who came to fulfill every word of prophecy, but did so in a way that nobody could have ever expected. You see, everything that Jesus did here on earth, every word that he spoke, every action was intentional. None of it was by accident. None of it was coincidental. Everything that he did was to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken about him. Do you know if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the words that were spoken, that at the very minimum, Jesus fulfilled 300 of the prophecies and as many as 550 or more. Do you know the mathematical odds to fulfill even 10 of those prophecies is pretty much impossible? And he fulfilled 300, maybe as many as 500, 600 prophecies. It's incredible, but this is God in action, stepping into our reality and bringing about a truth that is greater than we can understand or comprehend. This was the person of Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill every word, to be able to be the manifestation of truth, of love, of of who God is in a way that we could see, that we could touch, that we could experience. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. See, Jesus wasn't just known, but he was spoken about long before his birth. This is the Savior that came to earth. And so the question that I need to ask you today as we go into this next story is who is this, who is this Savior? Who is this Jesus? What is it that you have expected of him? And more importantly, what does he expect of you? I want you to keep these questions in mind as we read the words of Jesus and we see the truth that he speaks in every circumstance. So Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, says that, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, this whole whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This story really is a beautiful story for so many reasons. Number one, we see yet another fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9 foretells that Jesus would come in this very way. We see that this is finally this point in time where the people are recognizing who Jesus is. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's coming into town and we see this triumphal entry. 
But as we read this story, as beautiful as it is, the fulfillment of prophecy, the recognition of Jesus, I find myself asking this question, what is it that led to this moment? Jesus had been on earth for three and a half years performing miracles. During this time, there were many that followed after him, that come to, came to see him. Everywhere he turned, every time that he went to go be alone, every time that he showed up someplace, the crowds would gather. They would surround him. They, they would want to see him and hear from him. But why now? What was it about this moment that resulted in the people shouting Hosanna in the highest? What was it about now that caused them to take their their cloaks off and and palm branches and lay them down on the road for their king? Number one, we could very easily say that this was just God's timing. It was the fulfillment of his ministry. It was the time where he was now going to enter into this journey to the cross, and that's very true. But there's another element of this story that is really important for us to see. And we're given context for this in the book of John. John speaks about this moment in John chapter 11, or this precedes this story, and we find this miracle that Jesus performs, and it's one of the most amazing miracles that I believe we see Jesus perform, at least from a human perspective. Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has been dead for four days. Now, I know we read these stories a lot, and we don't really think about it, but think about this. This man was dead for four days. Imagine being there, Imagine knowing this man, knowing that he had passed away, knowing that he was in the grave, and yet Jesus comes to the tomb. He tells them to roll the stone away. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And this man comes out of the tomb, wrapped in his, in the garments and in the, in the wrapping of a, of a dead man, and he comes before them. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the terror. Imagine all that must have been going through their minds at that moment. This man was dead, and now he is alive. They could probably still smell the stench coming out of the tomb, and yet there he was standing before them. You see, the, the amount of emotion that must have been present in that moment would have been incredible, but then the Scripture tells us that he then withdraws and goes to the wilderness because the religious leaders, once again, they're upset. They're always upset. They're always upset about something. And, and so Jesus pulls away and he goes to the wilderness, he goes to the, to the, the place of, of solitude. And so then imagine their feelings at that point. This Jesus, the one who now many would believe was the Messiah, the Son of God, he's here, he has arrived, the fulfillment of 400 years of prophecy is standing in front of us, but now he's gone. There would have been the excitement and the disappointment. There would have been the, the exhilaration And then the anticipation, when is this king going to return? You see, all of this took place in this town, in Bethpage, in Bethany, in that surrounding area. This was the area that it says that Jesus comes to and tells his disciples, go get the donkey and the colt. This is the same area that must have still been buzzing about the miracle that Jesus had performed. This was the area that must have been turned upside down from the stories from those who were there and those who weren't about the Messiah who had come. And this word would not have stopped in Bethany. It wouldn't have stopped in Bethpage. This word would have spread to Jerusalem, to the big city. And so when Jesus returned, imagine the excitement. Our king has returned. 
Our king is here. The Messiah has arrived. Spread the word. And as they came into Jerusalem, the manifestation of this was them laying down what they had because they recognized who was in front of them. It was an incredible moment. It was an incredible moment that came out of this incredible miracle and the excitement that would have grown. And you can imagine Jesus coming into the city. Finally, finally the people understand who he is. Finally, the people recognize that he is the Savior. Finally, they recognize that he is the King. So then the question is, what happens now? You know, for Jesus, the question is, okay, what's your next step? Like, in earthly terms, it's kind of like, okay, you've got all of the following. You've got all the people. You can ride right into Jerusalem. You can take your place you have no limitations. You are God. You can do whatever you want. It's kind of like, just don't screw this up. Especially don't offend anybody else. Maybe just be a little bit nicer to the religious leaders from here on out. Maybe just try to win them over. Maybe just try to do what the crowds want you to do and and to adhere to their expectations and, and to become the man that they want you to be. This is kind of the way that we look at things sometimes. This, I believe, in large part, is the error of many of the pulpits around our nation. That they get the support, that they get the following, that they get the finances that they need, that they have the certain amount of notoriety, and so all of a sudden the truth that comes forward is now tempered by, well, how is it going to be received? How are my tithes and offerings going to be affected? I don't want to offend too many people. I don't want to say too much. If I, if I say this, then they're going to leave me. I've worked so hard to get to this point. Where's it all going to go if I speak the truth? You see, it's a very real thing. You become a pastor and you start to recognize, okay, this doesn't all just happen. There are finances involved. The tithes and offerings matter. There, there is this thought as you're preparing a message, maybe I could just be a little less harsh in the way that I'm going to say this. Maybe I could just toe the line a little bit more and and it's going to be received better. Can I tell you that for anyone who is given the opportunity to speak the truth of the word of God, that should never be a thought that comes into their mind. That if you have the opportunity to preach the word and the truth of God, that it must come forth unadulterated. That it cannot be mixed with with a watered-down version of what truth is just to be able to appease the masses? You see, this is the way we would have done things, maybe, but not Jesus. We look to churches throughout history. We look at the German church during the rise of the Nazi regime and the churches that remained silent in that critical time. We look at the churches during the time of slavery in our country that would have remained silent and twisted the scriptures and and cherry-picked what they believed that they wanted to hear in order to justify the evil that they were perpetrating. I I went to Rwanda this last year, and, and we went through the museum, and I was really saddened to learn that so many of the killings that took place in that nation, they happened in the churches. Because those who should have been the ones that were upholding truth and standing for what was right were rolling over. Truth. Truth is the thing that we must stand on. And it is the thing that Jesus, in every action, 
He was the most loving individual that has ever walked the planet. He was love personified, but never once did he back away from the truth. John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We have to be those who would know the truth, uphold the truth, and walk in the truth. See, this is the model of Jesus. But I see so often, once again, there are so many that just... They just want to be user-friendly because they think, well, this is how I'm going to bring people to Jesus. I just want people to feel good when they come in the doors. I just want them to feel okay. I just want them... And then I even see pastors apologizing for speaking the truth. They speak the truth, but then they apologize for it. Like, I don't understand this, and I don't understand them. See, Jesus was love personified, but had no issue whatsoever raising the standard for those who would follow after him. This is why we see the next story after he comes into Jerusalem as the king is he goes into the temple and he makes friends with everybody inside. John chapter 2 verses 15 and 17. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And it says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What was the reason that Jesus drove them out of the temple? Was it because they were making a mockery of of the house of God? Yes. Was it because they were taking advantage of the poor? Yes. But what does it say here that his disciples remembered? The word that said, it's zeal for your house that will consume me. This word zeal is the Greek word zelos which means to pour out in abundance, to boil over. It's the picture of a pot boiling over with great intensity. Some translations would would say that this verse actually says it was out of a deep place of love for the house of God, for the temple of God, that it caused him to, to take these actions. You see, everything Jesus did, it was out of a place of love. It was love for people, yes, but it was a love for his God. It was a love and a recognition for who the father was. And out of a result of the deep love inside of him, he had to act. Just think about this. He comes into the city as the returning, uh, as the king, the Messiah. And the next thing he does is he goes to the temple and he clears it out. There's a reason for this. There was such a sense of who he was that he knew that truth needed to be the thing that would rule and reign. And he didn't care how many people that he offended along the way. You know that Jesus wasn't afraid to offend people? How can you be perfect love and also not be so concerned that you're going to offend somebody? 
There's something in this that we have to see. And it's because of the love that Jesus had for the people. It was because he loved them that he wasn't afraid to offend them. It was because he loved them that he wasn't afraid to speak the truth. You can't have love without truth. You can't leave people where they are in a place of dysfunction and pain and hurt and actually say that you love them. You can't allow people to continue to live in the cycle of dysfunction and pain and stuff that have been passed down through the bloodline and say, hey, brother, I love you. God bless you where you are. It's not how this works because there is this this fact where Jesus came into the temple, he cleaned house, but then we read in verse 14. It, It seems like a contradiction, but it's not. He flips over the tables, he has the whip, he drives them out, and it says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. These things were happening at the same time. The truth being spoken and the power of God coming to bring freedom to those who were hurting and in bondage. You can't have one without the other. Who is this unexpected Savior? See, Jesus lived his life in undiluted truth and unadulterated love. There was no compromise. There was no contradiction because truth and love go hand in hand. We said this last week. Truth looks like something. Love looks like something. It's not enough to say I love you. It's, it's the same way where, where the Bible says you don't just, you just preach the word of God and don't give them something that, that they need. You, you, have to, you have to be able to meet people where they are. And Jesus was so good at this. And, and I want to continue to look at this. But before we get there, there's this other story that we read in chapter 21 that, that seems like it's out of place. If I was writing the story, I wouldn't have put it in this place. Verse 20, or chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. After healing the sick in the temple, after once again angering the religious leaders, we read that in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. All right, so we have Jesus' triumphant return to Jerusalem, clearing out of the, out of the temple and, and restoring truth back to the house of God, and then Jesus is talking to a bush. Why is this here? It's because he was speaking something to his disciples and speaking something that we needed to see in this Holy Week. It wasn't that Jesus was hangry. It wasn't the Snickers commercial, you're not you when you're hungry. There there was something to this that he was speaking. He was saying that simply looking the part is not enough. The religious leaders looked the part. Boy, did they look the part. They went out of their way at every opportunity to make sure that people could hear them pray and to see them fasting and to to look a certain way. They looked the part. But the problem is, is that even in looking the part, they were not bearing fruit that would produce life. Jesus was saying, if you're going to be a child of God, if you're going to be a follower of mine, there needs to be something that's going to come out of your life 
There needs to be something that is reproduced in you that is going to bring life to those around you. You can't just look the part. And I feel that there are too many in the church of America who are more willing to look the part than they are to submit to the king. There are those that would wave the, the palm branches but would not be willing to waive their own rights to go to the king and to submit to him. See, Jesus had no problem communicating that there was a standard. He wasn't false advertising in any way. I brought this up here today because I was recently, I was going to say doing laundry, but my wife is here, and so she would probably say that that wasn't true. I was... Okay, I was folding after she did the laundry because I have to like pull my weight around here sometimes. And so I was folding this sweatshirt for my daughter and, and it's, it's cute because it's tiny and you know, that's, you know, kids clothes are cute. It's got this little pink writing on here, which is also cute. It's pink, it's shiny, it's embossed. But then I was reading the words on it as I was folding it. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you happy. And I thought, if this is not the message of the world that we live in right now, I don't know what is. And I also said with all certainty that my daughter will never <laughs> be wearing that again. I promise you that as much merchandise as we might put out in this church, it's never going to say that. Do whatever makes you happy. I tried to take a Sharpie and do whatever makes God happy, but it didn't really come out that well. So, But this is the message of the world right now. Do whatever makes you happy. Whatever feels good, whatever makes sense to you, just do this because certainly Jesus would, he would be for you in this. If it makes you happy, then, then it's all good. It's, it, this is the message that we communicate to our children. This is the message that we speak to, to people. And we think that as long as we're happy, if that is our pursuit, then everything's going to be okay. And that God is going to be happy to just watch us live in our dysfunction. See, we have to see the real Jesus. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. It's a passage that we've read quite a few times over the last couple of weeks. It's a passage that Jesus speaks about what it meant to follow him it says, now great crowds accompanied him. We see this is a theme for Jesus. They accompanied him and he turned to them and he said, once again, this is what he chooses to say when he has the support of the people. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he have cannot be my disciple. That is a motivating speech to give to your followers. Everyone's following after you like, hey, this is, this is good, guys. And, and they're like, okay. How is this the words that, that the loving Savior speaks? See, Jesus was not interested in partial buy-in or a halfway lifestyle. Jesus is everything that we know, that we love, that we worship, that we serve. He is all of the love and the grace and the kindness and the mercy 
He's the one that says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the same Jesus that spoke those words that say, if you don't deny everything else, you can't follow after me. It's the same Jesus. It's the truth and it's the love. It's the truth of, of the reality of who we are and who we're called to be and also the arms of the Savior being opened wide saying, come to me because I'm the one that is going to give you rest. I'm the one that's going to give you freedom. I'm the one that's going to give you fulfillment. I'm the one that's going to take every situation in your life that the enemy may have meant for evil and I'm going to use it for good. It's the same Jesus. But so often we want one without the other. And it's a package deal. We can't separate Jesus from Jesus. We can't choose the one that we want one day and the, and the other side the other day. You cannot have forgiveness without repentance. You cannot find rest in him and his burden being easy and light while still carrying the burden of the world. And it's because of this extreme that the church has been in one side or the other that we've sent mixed messages to the world. We've either walked in law or we've walked in grace, but we haven't found the ability to to find obedience and reliance on Jesus, knowing that there, there is a requirement, there is a standard. Why is there a standard, church? Why is there a bar? Why is there, there an expectation of the kingdom of heaven? It's because of the God that we serve. Our God is holy. Lest we ever forget, our God is perfect. Our God does not lower the standard because he cannot. He is who he is and he will always be forevermore. But we have to remember this and understand this. I want to read this this parable here in chapter 22 because we have to understand both sides of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you want to in your own time, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. There's a king, and he invites the people to come to a feast. Specific people, those who are on the list. And he sends out the invitation, and it says that What happens in this moment is that they don't just turn down the invitation, but they kill the messengers. And so the king says, well, they're not worthy. They're not worthy to come, and I'm sure they're going to be dealt with. So now I want you to go out, and I want you to open up this feast to everybody. I want you to make space and room for everybody. I want you to invite every person that was not on the list, and I want you to bring them into the feast because the doors are now open to them. And this is a great story, and it, it, it shows the love of, of God and the kingdom. But then at the very end of this, this parable, it seems to take this twist. Because there's a man that is sitting there, and the king comes up to him and says, Friend, how did you get in here without wearing the proper garments? How did you get in here without meeting the requirements to come into this feast? And we look at this and we think, man, that's not fair. The king invited everybody to come in. He opened the door to every person to come in. How could he possibly take this man and throw him out? 
that's not very inclusive. That, that doesn't show love. That's not the Jesus that I know. But what we have to see in this story is what it says at the very end. He says to them, many are called, but few are chosen. The message says, many get invited, but only a few will make it. You see, the invitation is absolutely for all. The invitation to the kingdom of heaven is for all. There are no exceptions. All are invited to come in to the feast. But if we don't understand that there is a requirement, if we don't understand that there is a standard and an expectation for those who would follow after Jesus, then we could show up to that place unprepared because no one bothered to tell us the truth. If we are the church that is only willing to say, do whatever makes you happy, without communicating the truth of Jesus that calls for repentance and obedience, then how do we expect anyone in the world to find freedom waiting for them on the other side? You see, we offer the world Jesus, and they say, why? Jesus loves you. Well, why do I need Jesus if everything I have is, is, is okay? If there is no standard, why do I need a Savior? You see, there is a standard of holiness. It is the standard of a kingdom, of the kingdom. And this is why the enemy will so frequently say, or ask the question, did God really say? The enemy will consistently ask this question of us. Did God really say? Like, I know that God is real. The devil has no problem admitting that God is real. The devil has no problem with us believing in Jesus. But when our belief in Jesus actually requires that we do something about it, well, that's what the devil wants to stop at all costs. You see, gravity doesn't care whether or not you believe in it. The earth doesn't need your opinion to rotate around the sun. There are some things that just are. Gender is not fluid. It's not based on emotion. It doesn't depend on how you feel. There is a standard. A standard being a set amount. It's a level that does not change. There was a time in our country where men and women would actually attempt to meet the standard and exceed the standard instead of lower the standard to such a level where anybody could reach it. The, the Wright brothers, if they didn't believe in gravity, they never would have taken off in flight. If NASA just would have identified as a group of scientists and astronauts, they never would have made it to, to the great heights that they did. There is a standard, but we have to know the standard in order to understand that we can't make it there on our own, that we need a Savior that will help us to come to the place 
of being able to achieve what he has for us. Because as often as we will look at and say we don't have a standard, that's when the craftiness of the serpent will come into play. Once again, he doesn't need the world to believe in Jesus. He only needs the world to conform Jesus into their own image and likeness. The problem is, though, is that holiness is non-negotiable. There's a bar. There is a standard. Jesus says, this is the standard. And this standard will not change because once again, God cannot change. We have been created in the image and likeness of who? God. Therefore, the standard is the standard of God. The world would say, let's lower the standard so that you don't need a savior. You can do it on your own. But God would say, this is the standard. This standard will not change. And the only way that we are going to meet this standard is through the person of Jesus. God cannot ever lower the standard because he cannot become any less holy. The world does not have an understanding of this. The world says it's not fair that I can't do what I want to do. And God says, I can't change. I am God. There is no ability for God to become any less holy or perfect. And there is no ability for us to reach it on our own. But there was a man who was sent by God. There was the Son of God who came to earth and said, I'm going to come into a place of complete imperfection. I'm going to live a life of perfection. And in my death and my resurrection, you are no longer going to be in a place where you're looking up at the bar thinking, I can never reach it. But that you will understand that now you have been seated in heavenly places with me. But once again, if we don't know there is a standard, why do we have any need to try to reach it? The truth has to be spoken. The truth has to be taught because we have to know that the only way we get there is through Jesus. Jesus upheld and he reinforced and he raised the standard. But then he opened his arms wide and said, there's a standard you could never reach on your own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how passionate you are. I don't care how good you look on the outside. You will never reach it on your own. But guess what? You don't have to. The truth is, is that there is a level that you can never reach. But the truth that is even greater than that is that there is a Savior named Jesus who is available to every single one of us. But this is why it's so important that we uphold the truth. This is why it's so important for us to understand that there is a level that we are called to walk in as sons and daughters, believers in Jesus. We can't make excuses for ourselves and others. We can't be the church that is tolerant, willing to fly every flag known to man so that people will just come into the doors. We can't preach a watered-down gospel in an effort to get people to come in. Because if they don't know the truth, 
If we're not walking in the truth, we will have nothing to offer them. We need to be the church that knows the power and the authority that God has given to us so that we can be the church that will bring the redemption and the freedom that they need. This is a world that is hurting. It's dying. It's in pain. None of these words, none of talking about a standard is to condemn anybody. We have to recognize that the world needs what Jesus has given them, but he has chosen us to be the ones to convey the message. power that we have can only be found in the realization that Christ died to restore us back to a place of righteousness. That we are righteous through Christ Jesus. We can't be the ones that accept a dysfunction in our own lives and, and then expect to be able to bear fruit for others. We have to know the truth, the redemption, the forgiveness of Jesus deep to the core of who we are. It doesn't mean that speaking the truth is going to be more comfortable. It doesn't mean it's going to be easier. It doesn't mean it's going to be applauded by men. But it does mean that if we do so with the anointing that God wants to put on his believers, on his church, on his children, that there will be something in our words that will somehow be able to communicate the truth and the love at the same time. This bar, this standard is not to hit people over the head with. It's not a weapon. But it is the ability to draw all men unto Jesus so that they know that there is an option, there is a life preserver, that there is redemption available to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul speaking, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the, Jew, the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It doesn't make sense to the world and it doesn't even always make sense to us. But the truth is the truth. And the truth of the matter is this, is that we have been called to love. We have a responsibility on this earth. We can't sit idly by to allow the world to just go and do what the world is going to do without realizing that we have the ability to bring the greatest gift that has ever been given through the person of Jesus. We have to be those who know what we carry. See, Jesus laid down everything. He laid down his very life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross because he knew that the creation that he loved would now have the ability to come back into relationship with him. This was the joy that was set before him. See, we have the ability to trust in a king who laid down his very life so that we could be raised up to a greater level than we could ever imagine. Do we know this is our identity, church? Do we know that this is who we are in him? Do we know what our Savior has done for us? We cannot be those who are overwhelmed by the darkness of the world anymore. We can't be those that live as though we don't have the greatest hope that has ever been given. But if we are continually the ones who are living trying to reach that standard still, 
instead of understanding that what Jesus did, that his death and his resurrection, that when we say it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me, if we don't understand that we have now been seated in those heavenly places, that we have been seated with Christ, we will continually be reaching for something that is already ours instead of reaching to the world around us and bringing them into the place of freedom that we know, into the place of healing, into the place of forgiveness, into the place of redemption. Church, this is what we have This is who we are in Jesus. Are we willing to walk in the truth and the identity that he's given to us? Are we willing to ask for the grace that we need to be able to communicate his truth in love, but without watering it down for a moment? 